Well, we're continuing here in our series of message from the Gospel of John. We're in the middle of a long chapter. Chapter 6 of John uh, has a whole lot going on. Now, uh, the other Gospels, all, all four of the Gospels mention the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. Uh, but John is the only one that spends so much with the aftermath of that event and how Jesus interpreted the significance of that event and the conversations he had both with disciples and with the crowds at large about what that was meant to communicate. Uh, so I've actually broken it down into, uh, I think, five sermons. Uh, we've already done two, and uh, I think we have two more after today's before we'll finish the chapter. There's just so much in uh, what Jesus is talking about in all of this. Uh, but uh, as I was preparing this week, uh, I was pondering the idea of needs um, and how how accurately we evaluate needs. And I wanted you to think for a minute. Can you think of something in your life that you thought was a real need? If somebody had asked you, is this uh, just something you kind of like or is, it, or is it a basic need for you? That you would have said, yes, I need this. And that some, somehow you came to realize that you didn't really need it. It wasn't that important, as important as you thought it was. Or maybe uh, the opposite, something that uh, people might have said, you really need this, and you say, you know, I don't really need that. I mean, yeah, it might be okay to, to, to do something with that, but I'm, I don't really need it, only to find that that is something you desperately need. I remember as a teenager, I thought I knew what I needed. I had a very... Uh, kind of clear idea of what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to do art in some form or fashion, and uh, I had visions of getting good training somewhere and uh, having a studio and painting paintings and being an artist and doing all these things, and I, I really thought that was what I needed. That was what I was made to do. I was 15 when God told me he wanted me to preach. And at that moment, I didn't think I needed that. I thought, you know, God, I've already got some stuff I want to do. I, I'm not really that interested in, well, no, not that. I, I wasn't interested at all in preaching. I didn't want to stand up in front of people. I was 15 years old, you know. I didn't want to do any of that. Uh, and God has been gracious. I've, through my life, I've been able to do both. I did get a Bachelor of Fine Arts with a specialization in painting, uh, and I've done some freelance work uh, through the years, and I've uh, taught for several years at the American School of Las Palmas. I taught art. Uh, at, so I've, I've done some art things, and I've realized through life that I really enjoy art, but I don't really need it the way I thought I did. And then there's this other thing that I didn't think I needed at all. And uh, the years of God having imposed this calling upon me has forced me to dig into the Bible in ways that I wouldn't have otherwise. And I shudder to think of how I would have faced the darkest moments in my life, the most challenging things that life has thrown at me, if God had not prepared me 
through the study of his word. I didn't think I needed this. It turns out I don't know if I would be here without it. The art's been fine, but I didn't really need that. I think that's the conversation Jesus is having with the crowds in today's passage. So I've titled today's message, Needs and Wants. And we're in John chapter 6, verses 22 through 40. Let me catch us up. So Jesus has uh, gone to the other side of the lake, and uh, a whole crowd has followed him around the north shore of the lake and met him on the other side. And uh, he has performed a miraculous provision of food for this crowd. There's 5,000 men. We don't know how many because they didn't count the women and children, just the men, but more, well more than 5,000 people. All they had was five barley loaves and two fish. And Jesus thanked the Father for the fish and the bread, and he broke it and gave it, and the disciples gave it. Everybody took as much as they wanted, all they wanted to eat. Everybody ate their fill, not just their fill. There was so much left over, they picked up 12 baskets full of the leftovers. Jesus miraculously fed a multitude with nothing. And uh, that story kind of ends weird. Uh, The crowds want to take him by force and make him king, so Jesus withdraws. And then we go on to what we were looking at last week. The disciples get on their boat, and they're crossing the lake, and Jesus stays behind. And then there's this amazing encounter of the disciples with Jesus in the middle of the Lake of Galilee. They're tossed and turned by the storm. They're turned around. They're three or four miles in. And Jesus walks three or four miles on the water to meet them in the middle of the lake and uh, tells them who he is. I am. Fear not. And uses the divine name to reveal to them clearly who he is and gives them the divine command that we find repeated so often in Scripture. Fear not. I got this. I, my desire is for you and I will take care of you. Fear not. Jesus communicates that to the disciples and the disciples want him in their boat. That's where we left off yesterday. We go back to the crowd that stayed behind. And let's, let's read, beginning in verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that had been on the other side of the sea, seeing that there was no other small boat there but the one, and that Jesus had not gone in with his disciples into the boat, but his disciples had departed alone, other small boats came out of Tiberias near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. When therefore the crowd saw that neither Jesus is there nor his disciples, they got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So, this all happens overnight. They arrive at Capernaum. The next morning, we switch back to the crowd that's still on the other side of the lake. And they realize, okay, Jesus didn't get into the boat with the disciples. The boat's gone. There was no other boats. That's the only boat there was there. They don't know where Jesus is. And finally, they just say, okay, well, there's nothing here we're interested in seeing. Uh, None of Jesus' disciples are here. Jesus isn't here. Let's just go back to Capernaum and see if we can find him there. And it so happens that that morning, a bunch of small boats showed up from Tiberias, uh, that city that was on the uh, southeastern 
uh, I'm sorry, southwestern shore uh, of the Sea of Galilee. So they happened to show up and the people, I guess, paid fares or did something and, and got them to get them by boat across the lake, which apparently would be quicker than walking. And they all get on these boats and make their way to Capernaum trying to find Jesus. Uh, they're very interested in Jesus. They want to know what he's up to and uh, they're very obviously impressed by what he's just done, this feeding of so many with, with so little. So they, they're trying to find Jesus. So let's keep reading, verse 25. And finding him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I tell you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate from the loaves and were filled. Work not for the food that is being destroyed, but for the food that is abiding into life eternal, which the Son of Man will give to you. For God the Father has certified this one. So they arrive in Capernaum. They find Jesus. They address him respectfully as rabbi, as teacher. Rabbi, when did you get here? We didn't see you. Jesus, as he often does, doesn't uh, chase that particular rabbit. He doesn't answer their question. He just goes right to what they need to be talking about. Uh, you'll find that Jesus does that a lot. Uh, and so he answers and says, truly, truly. Now, there are two, two verses in this text we're looking at today where Jesus begins what he's saying with the words, truly, truly. Amen, amen. Uh, and and that's, that's his way of signaling, I'm about to lay some serious truth on you. What I am about to say is a very important truth. You really need to pay attention to what I'm about to say. This is the God's honest truth. You seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate from the loaves and were filled. Jesus says, I'm going to tell you the truth of the matter. You guys are desperately chasing after me, but you're doing it for the wrong reasons. You're not seeking from me what you need to be seeking from me. You are seeking me not because of the signs. And John almost in some verses in this chapter uses the whole idea of see as believe, as put your faith in. You saw, uh, not because you saw signs. And what he means by that is not just that they hadn't witnessed the signs he's been doing, but that they didn't comprehend them. They didn't get it. You're not following after me because you understood what I was trying to tell you when I fed you all with a couple of loaves of bread and some fish. I was communicating something profound there and you didn't get what I was talking about because all you got out of this was that was a lot of free food. And boy, we had a lot of it. It's great. I can't remember last time somebody gave me all I wanted to eat without having to pay a penny. That's great. That's all they got out of that. Jesus can make a lot of food. Jesus says, here's, here's, let me offer you the word of correction that if you pay attention to it, it'll work. Work not for the food that is being destroyed. That bread that they ate, uh, it fed them one day. And it's done. It's gone. 
And that bread by its very nature is a very transitory thing. If you don't eat it the day it's baked, it very quickly becomes something you don't want to eat. Because it falls apart, it gets hard, it dries up, it becomes something inedible. It is subject to immediate deterioration and destruction. And Jesus says, don't work for that. Work for the food that is abiding into life eternal. Jesus lets them know a couple of things. There is such a thing as living forever. There is such a thing for the human being as eternal life. And what I'm saying is you need to be working with your eyes on that kind of thing. The kind of thing that is going to endure and remain throughout eternity. Not the stuff that just falls apart. Not the stuff that is already in the process before your very eyes of being destroyed. There is eternally significant work available to us. And Jesus says how we get it. Which the Son of Man will give to you. And Jesus is using this messianic title from Daniel 7. The king to whom the ancient of days delivers the kingdom over all kingdoms. And he will rule with an iron scepter over all the nations. And will bring peace to the nations eternally. And his kingdom will never end. That's the promise he's referencing when he uses for himself the title son of man. And he's also pointing to the fact of his incarnation. That in uh, the incarnation God has become a man to walk among us. One like us. The Son of Man is going to give you this kind of work. How do we attain to significance in life? Jesus says, I'll give it to you. And you might say, well, why should I believe you can do that, Jesus? And Jesus says, well, God the Father has put his seal on this one. God the Father has certified. You know, you put your seal of approval, the stamp that says, I have certified that this is the genuine item. He says, the Father has done that with me. Now, Jesus was making astounding claims of divinity, of divine origin. I have come from heaven. I and the Father are one. He's making all these wild claims. And they would be wild claims, except that when he commands the storm, it stops. When he talks to the dead and says, get up, they get out of the grave. He can walk on water. He's not a charlatan. He's not one of these guys who's fooling the masses and uh, making all kinds of wild, impossible claims. He is actually, the Father has validated that he is who he says he is by the signs which he has allowed Jesus to perform. He has been certified by the Father. What Jesus is talking about here is investment. And this is the most basic lesson I can give you on investment. I'll tell you, I'm not a finances guy. Those of you who know me know that about me. But you know what? Finances are not the most important type of investment we deal with in life. 
What are you going to invest your life in? Not your money, your life. Are you going to invest it in things that are right now in the process of falling apart? Like your house? Like your car? Like a career that you are not going to keep for eternity? Sometimes it may feel that way. Uh, But these are all temporary things. We know we're not going to be doing this forever. forever. We know these are things that are not going to continue forever. How much time do we invest? How much of ourselves do we throw into these things that are right now before our very eyes in the process of falling apart? Now Jesus says there is a work that abides into life eternal. And the key to accessing that kind of investing is Jesus, which the Son of Man will give to you Jesus can give us this, but we can only find it in him. We're not going to find it anywhere else. I have a question from these verses. Jesus warned against wasting our life working for things that won't remain. Would you say most of what you do is centered on things that will remain forever or things that will naturally fade away? Let's keep reading verses 28 and 29. So they said to him, what could we do to work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is God's work, that you should believe in the one whom he sent. Now I think to understand this chapter and the dialogue back and forth between Jesus and the crowds, we really have to put ourselves in the mindset of a first century Jew. And for centuries now, the Jews had been under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And before that, it was the Greeks. And before that, it was the Persians. And before that, it was the Babylonians. They have not been independent since the Babylonians took over Jerusalem. (coughs) Six centuries ago, they have been under someone's thumb all this time. And Rome sends out corrupt officials that overtax them and they're under the burden of an oppressive invading force. And they see in the scriptures the promise of a king of kings who will make all things right, who will bring peace to the earth, who will judge the oppressors. And, and when Jesus shows up, their immediate thought is maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe he's come to fix all that's wrong and establish the eternal kingdom of God and do away with wickedness and evil and oppression forever. And in their minds, they had a clear idea of what this was going to look like. Jesus would show up. He would raise the appropriate armies. They would conquer the Roman Empire, put the Romans in their place. And then surely Jesus would need people to organize this army. And not only that, but then there's the work of teaching the whole pagan world about God and about what God expects of us and what it looks like to live a righteous life. And they would need teachers and priests and all kinds of people. So when they say to Jesus, Jesus, what do we need to do to do God's works? I think that's what they're asking about. Where do you want us in the rank and file of your new kingdom? This, remember, just a few verses earlier, they wanted to take him by force and make him king. That's what they're thinking about. When they ask about what God wants from them, they're saying, what positions do you want us to fill in this kingdom? 
we're good to go. So Jesus' answer, again, it's like throughout this whole passage, it's like Jesus and the crowds are talking two different conversations. What Jesus is talking about, they don't seem to have any clue. And what they keep talking about is what Jesus is trying to tell them, you're on the wrong page. But he says, there's only one work. I'm not going to talk to you about the works of God. Let me talk to you about the work of God. That you should believe in the one whom he sent. And Jesus has already told them, he's the one the Father has sent. What does God need from us? He doesn't need great achievements. He doesn't need great sacrifices. He doesn't need great skills and abilities laid at his disposal. What he needs is to be the focus of our trust. If we believe in nothing else but Jesus, that is the one thing God wants us to believe in. Now, the world around us tells us that belief is very important. you got to believe. But they don't tell you what to believe in. Or they say nonsense like believe in yourself. Let me tell you, you're a mess. Don't do that. You're not appropriate as an object of faith. Don't believe in your nation. Don't believe in your group of peers. Don't believe in the ideals of your society. Believe in the one thing Jesus, God said, we need to believe in. Believe in Jesus. Everything else springs from that. Everything else. These works of eternal significance, guess who gives them to us? The Son of Man, Jesus. So there is one thing God needs from us, that we focus our life on Jesus. From that comes everything else. From that flows everything else. And I think oftentimes we forget how simple the Christian faith is. It's Jesus. It boils down to a person. It's not the Ten Commandments. It's not a rule of, of a list of rules and behaviors. All of those flow out of Jesus. All of that transformation of heart and activity and focus and behavior flows out of Jesus. That is who he is and who he becomes in us. So that we are transformed into his likeness and begin to think like he thinks and prioritize like he prioritizes and behave like he behaves. But unless it's coming from him, if it's just us trying to create some kind of a, a sick carbon copy of it, it's worthless. It isn't the real thing. So forget about the works God wants. There's one thing he needs from you. Believe in the one he sent to you. I have a question from these verses. Jesus said that there is only one thing we must do to achieve a life of works that endure. Believe in him. How can our faith in Jesus be the only work that matters in life? Let's continue in verse 30. 
So they said to him, so what sign are you doing so that we may see and believe you? What work do you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it has been written. Bread from heaven he gave them to eat. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but my Father is giving you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down out of heaven and gives life to the cosmos. So they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. We continue to see this disconnect between the crowd and Jesus. They say, okay, you say that the, the only thing the Father wants from us is that we believe in you. Why should we believe in you? What validating sign are you going to perform for us? And you have to be wondering, what in the world are you guys talking about? He just fed you with five loaves and two fish. There were more than 5,000 of you. What do you mean show us a sign? He healed a paralytic who had been paralyzed for 38 years. We still can't fix that today with all our medicine. And he just said it and it happened. No physical therapy, no therapy, no nothing. He got up and walked. He has done incredible signs in their presence. And yet they say, what sign are you going to do to earn our belief? I wonder how many people approach Jesus like that today. Yeah, there's all this stuff about you dying and rising and all this promise of eternal life and forgiveness of sins and all this stuff. But what are you going to do for me? I need a better car. Impress me, Jesus. There are actually people who approach God that way. It's not that Jesus has not performed signs already. What work do you do? And they have a something in mind. Our ancestors ate manna. Bread he gave them to eat. Bread from heaven he gave them to eat. And this is a quote from a psalm, Psalm 78. Bread from heaven he gave them to eat. And I think they're kind of thinking, okay, Moses before he died said, God is going to send you another prophet like me. When he comes, you need to listen to him. You need to pay attention to what he tells you to do. And uh, they're thinking, okay, this is it. If this really is the Messiah, then you show us that you're at least as good as Moses. He gave us manna. What are you going to do? And again, they're thinking, we're tired of being hungry. We're tired of just scraping by. Give us more. And we'll believe in you. Jesus again begins with, truly, truly. I'm going to lay some truth on you guys. Pay attention. Listen up. Moses didn't give you any bread. It wasn't Moses that gave you squat. God gave you the bread. And let me tell you something else. My father is not only the one who gave your ancestors bread in the wilderness, but my father is the one who has right now given to you something even better than he gave through Moses. That bread was a symbol 
It pointed to God providing perfectly for you exactly what you need sufficiently and perfectly but that bread was the same kind of perishable thing that Jesus is saying we don't need to work for that bread wouldn't last more than a day without rotting and you couldn't eat it on the second day it did not remain but it pointed to God making a real provision someday And Jesus says, my Father is giving you the true bread from heaven. What's he talking about? Jesus explains his metaphorical language. The bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven. He's talking about himself. I am the bread that comes from heaven. What do you need to uh, have your existence sustained perfectly? Jesus is saying, what you need is me. You don't need more bread. You need me. He says about himself that he gives life to the cosmos. It isn't just you and me that need Jesus. Everything that is needs Jesus. The whole universe needs Jesus. He is the source of all life. There is no life apart from him. I think the crowd misunderstands Jesus. I don't think they quite heard what he was saying. So they say, Lord, always give us this bread. It sounds like they have come to the altar. They've uh, finally turned their eyes on Jesus and have come to faith. But if we keep reading the chapter very clearly, that is absolutely not what's happened to the crowd. But they think they've goaded Jesus into stepping up and doing something kind of like what Moses did. Oh, Moses didn't really give you the bread, my father, and now my father sent me to give you bread. And they've not listened carefully what he said. They're thinking, Jesus is going to do it again. We're going to have some kind of manna or something like that. And it's, we're going to have all we need to eat. And we're going to raise our armies. And they're still making their plans. They didn't get that Jesus said, I am the bread. I'm not the one that gives you the bread. I am the bread. I'm not the one that gives you what you need. I am what you need. That's a a tremendously important distinction. Some people think that they need Jesus to get the stuff they want. I need Jesus to get a better job, to make more money, to have a good relationship, to have a good family. I need Jesus to give me all this other stuff. And what we're not understanding is that all that other stuff is not what we need. We need Jesus. That's the end of the sentence. The whole purpose of our existence is Jesus. They say, Lord, always give us this bread. I have a question from these verses. The crowd seemed eager for Jesus to feed them, but clearly they weren't talking about the same thing. How well do you think your understanding of life and work and significance lines up with that of Jesus? Let's finish reading the passage. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. 
The one who comes to me will never, ever hunger. And the one who believes in me will never, ever thirst again. But I've told you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All whom the Father gives to me will come to me. And I will never, ever cast out the one who comes to me. Because I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. Now this is the will of the one who sent me, that of all whom he has given to me, I might lose none, but will raise it all up on the final day. For this is my Father's will, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the final day. Jesus knows the crowd isn't understanding him, so he, he, he says it again. This time he, he says it more deliberately. I am the bread of life. I'm not the one who gives you the bread of life. I am the bread of life. If you come to me, that is what is going to satisfy your hunger. That is what is going to deal with your thirst. Here's what we need to understand. God created us with hunger and thirst because we needed a powerful reminder, a powerful metaphor built into our very existence that we need something to live. We need food to live. We need water to live. But guess what? There is a deeper significance to our existence. There is something we need on a deeper level than food and water. We're not just machines that need to plug along and uh, run their gears until they wind down. We are creatures created in the very image and likeness of God designed for eternity. And our souls cry out for that significance. We need more than this. And Jesus says, I'm the bread that takes care of the real need. Perfectly. There is nothing I am lacking in. You come to me, you are never, ever going hungry again. You are never, ever being thirsty again. And he's not talking about the physical. He's talking about the most profound issues of our human existence. I will take care of it forever. But he knows the crowd is not getting it. You've seen me. You've seen all I've done, but you don't believe He says, you know what, the Father is giving people to me and I haven't come here to exclude anybody. I haven't come here to say you're not good enough. I, every single person the Father brings to me, I'm not going to ever cast out a single one of them. I will receive them all. I didn't come on vacation. I came to this earth not to just enjoy myself for a while. I came to this earth to implement the will of God the Father. What is the will of the one who sent me? That I shouldn't lose a single one of every person he's brought to me to raise up on that final day. What is my Father's will? That every single person who looks on the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the final day. Jesus is the key to the reason God created to begin with. 
What is the purpose of creation? Why do we even exist? We were created for eternity with God. And the Father's will is restored after sin broke that and severed us from God and made a mess of our lives. Jesus came to make it possible that we could be restored. And that that original intent of God the Father could be fulfilled in us. And all he requires of us is that we put our faith in him. If we trust our lives to him, that's all, that's all it takes. He will give us life abundant and eternal. He will make the works of this life works that abide into life eternal. And he will, on that final day, at the end of this age, he will raise us up to life immortal. And we will share glory with him forever. That is what God wanted. Consider for a moment the contrast between what the crowds wanted and what God wanted. They wanted a deliverer, a military figure, somebody that would make things better for them, that would make there be less poverty, more work, better conditions, the kind of things politicians peddle. That's what they wanted from Jesus. What he came to give them was life eternal. Be, to be restored to a, a loving relationship with their creator, to be uh, entered into a process of transformation that will never uh, end, that will uh, stretch on into eternity. Sometimes what we want is not at all what God wants. But you know what? What God wants is always so much better. If we'll just have the courage to believe in him. I have a final question. The crowd wanted bread. God wants true satisfaction of genuine need at its most profound level and life eternal. How does our limited focus rob us of glories God has in mind for us? We were created for much more than this, than Instagram followers and Facebook likes, than great jobs and careers and marriages and children and family, than fun and games and entertainment and fine dining and uh, scoping out the latest local beer. God created us for a whole lot more than that. It is God Almighty's will that we should find in Jesus full and eternal satisfaction of the most profound needs we have as human beings. That we should, by Jesus, have access to an investment of our lives in things that will abide and remain into eternity. Significance. God's will for us is that on that day when this age ends, and the final curtain closes on this age, we will participate in the being raised to immortal glory. I hope we can all 
let go of the lesser things we've focused our hearts on and latch our hearts onto Jesus and whatever it is that he has in mind. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to us. For coming to give us life and to meet the most profound needs we have. Needs we don't even adequately understand or appreciate or even know ourselves. Thank you that you came not to just put a band-aid on things. But you came to bring absolute transformation. Glory and life and purpose. Lord Jesus, help us to let go of the lesser things we have latched onto and to latch onto you instead and let everything flow out of that. Be the center of it all. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.